Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, August 30th, 2021. On the show today, news, listener questions, where we play a game called Would You Rather? And in our main segment, Jim gives us part four of the history of Disney's haunted mansions. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that soup of the day implies the existence of a possibly more sultry soup of the night. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? It's 10.30 in the morning. It's August. And today here in New England, it is supposed to at least feel like it's 100 degrees out. So (laughs) right now, I'm having soup of the morning in my shorts. (laughs) (laughs) I would kill for some bouillabaisse base now because that's cool soup right gazpacho or gazpacho gazpacho or, or borscht some nice borscht. cool borscht you, yeah you're in the mountains you could head up to the Catskills, get some borscht and be fine oh it is one of the great great regrets of my life that i never made it to grossinger's the place in the Catskills. i do have a copy of the cookbook that the, the daughter of the, the guy who ran grossinger's made and it's just sort of like ooh, blintzes and and matzo ball soup i mean the real stuff that they served there in, in the Great Hall. But but yeah, I, I never made it up to the Catskills when it was the Catskills. Are any of the big uh, big resorts still open? No, no. In fact, you know, those urban explorers, there's a bunch of them who've actually been into Grossinger's and, you know, I mean, the giant indoor swimming pools right. and the, the great performance spaces where the, the great comics used to go up into the Catskills. You know, the, I mean, that's where Danny Kaye and Milton Berle and all those folks made their bones, so to speak. And ah. Sorry, we don't want to go down the, the Catskills rabbit hole, but it is. <laughs> we could talk about it all day. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's something I, I really, really would miss. I'd get. Paul and I have talked about doing a, a Catskills tour, like of the resorts, Ooh. to see if anything was uh, was still open. But all right, that's mildly disappointing. Okay, well, if you, if you need someone to schlep your bags, you know, you know who to call. <laughs> nice, nice. Okay. <laughs> all right, Jim. Let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over mm. at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers Carolyn Schaefer, DDB in Ohio, and Stephen Loy, and longtime subscribers Bullfrog One Seventeen, Gary Gentman. And T. Daryl from the United Kingdom. Jim, these are the folks who every night place orders of cedar, pine, and dyed linens with the Phoenician merchants at Spaceship Earth so those merchant ships can arrive in time for the next day's opening for the ride and guests get to see everything. True story. It just surprised me that I learned something every time in this segment. The question that I had was, you have to pay the Phoenicians in shekels because that was the currency at the time. Where are you getting the shekels from? It seems like you have to get them from somewhere to give them to the Phoenicians. That part hasn't been explained to me yet, but there's a. it seems like there's a trade deficit inside Spaceship Earth between the cast members and the Phoenicians. Maybe it's time to pay a little closer attention to that guy in the earlier scene, you know, the one who's hammering. I, I, I think there's an artificial shekels, you know, ring working <laughs> within Spaceship Earth. thing going on. <laughs> just, you know, right there in front of us, Len. We're looking at it. So. I mean, there is a lot of industry uh, industry later on in the, uh, in the ride. It's entirely possible. There you go. I mean, if you think about it, yeah, we got Gutenberg and a printing something up there. You got to take a closer look. That's a great point. Yeah. Spaceship Earth is a currency manipulation machine throughout time. The untold story. That would explain a lot about the emission (laughs) prices. But hey, that's another issue. Okay. (laughs) All right, Jim, let's do the news then. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, the big news out of Disney this week. 
the lineup of early theme park entry and extended evening hours attractions is out. So in the morning at the Magic Kingdom, looks like it's all of the Fantasyland and Tomorrowland attractions. So uh, Astro Orbiter, Buzz the Lightyear, Space Mountain, the TTA, then the Tomorrowland Speedway. But Jim, for me, the, the big Tomorrowland surprise is Carousel of Progress, open for Ooh. early theme park entry. Well, you know, you get that up really early. I'm just going to drink my 30-ounce Starbucks coffee in this chair while the rest of you you go off and do stuff. I'll see you at 10 (laughs) o'clock. Makes perfect sense to me. So the uh, for evening hours, it looks like all the major attractions in the park and the Magic Kingdom are open, except Hall of Presidents, which was never open for anything. Liberty Bell Riverboat, obviously, the People Mover, not open. Magic Carpets of Aladdin and Jungle Cruise don't look like they're going to be open for evening hours. And I was a little surprised, Jim, by Jungle Cruise, because I think that ride is actually better at night. I would agree. And from an operational point of view, with the exception of the People Movers, these are all sort of in the same quadrant of the park. What do you suppose that's all about? Well, so for evening hours, you get Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, mm-hmm. You get the all, all all the attractions in Frontierland, except mm-hmm. for you know Tom Sawyer Island. Mm-hmm. So you get um, yeah. It, so imagine everything in the park except for Jungle Cruise, Aladdin, Presidents, Riverboat. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah. Jungle Cruise. I, I don't entirely understand that, especially on the heels of the Dwayne Johnson Emily Blunt film, which they keep talking about. Hey, I think we found our next franchise. Oh, that's fantastic. Good. Over at uh, Epcot in the morning, mm-hmm. uh, you've got Beauty and the Beast sing-along, but no Remy. Mm-hmm. You've got Frozen Ever After, Mission Space, Soren, Spaceship Earth, Test Track, and the Seas with Nemo and Friends. So uh, no Remy, no Grand Fiesta, no Imagination. For evening hours, we get Grand Fiesta, but still no Remy. Hmm. And remember that evening hours are only at Epcot and Magic Kingdom. In the morning at the studios, you basically get everything <laughs> everything that's a ride, except for Rise of the Resistance, and oddly enough, Toy Story Mania. But Toy Story Mania has not been as popular since Toy Story Land opened as it was before. Part of that is, obviously, that there's more stuff to do. But, Jim, remember when you and I were originally talking about the Timekeeper over in Tomorrowland, and that part of the problem with Timekeeper not drawing crowds was just the way the entrance was designed? I was about to ask if you think that's the issue. I think it is with Toy Story Mania. I Ah. think it's it's that the way that the entrance is sort of skewed towards walking Mm -hmm. in from one way, and it's Mm -hmm. next to that character greeting area that sort of looks like this. It would be the entrance to Toy Story Mania. Mm -hmm. I think that's confusing people. Do we have any tracking on the Toy Story Land sit-down restaurant? I mean, I know we've been hearing about 220. Yeah, uh, Space 220 should be yeah. imminent. It should be the next month, yeah. No, I haven't heard anything about uh, the Woody's Barbecue place now. I wonder if on the heels of that we could see maybe some change in signage or, or that sort of thing. Because you're right. I mean, the weird part of it is when you come into that section of the park, well, first of all, your eye is, is almost automatically drawn to Slinky Dog, to the opposite side of the walkway, exactly. Yeah, and then, you know, between the Andy's Lunchbox restaurant, the meet and greet, and that sort of thing, there's a lot of clutter there. There's yeah, no... there's a lot going on, and you could you could walk right past the entrance and not even know it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's I think that's part of the problem with Toy Story Mania. Over at Animal Kingdom, they don't have that many rides in the park, so everything except Kilimanjaro Safaris is open for early theme park entry. So mm-hmm. Flight of Passage... Dinosaur, 
uh, Expedition Everest, it's tough to be a bug, which is like why it's tough to be a bug mm-hmm. and Triceratops spin, but not killing Safaris. I get Triceratops spin. I guess that's the kid's ride, but mm-hmm. it's tough to be a bug. If you look at the Magic Kingdom selections and that sort of thing, there is a, th- a theme that sort of runs the effect of these are families coming in with small kids who would, yeah. know, would love to knock these out early. So Right. Okay. Fair enough. Um, all right, Jim, let's do some listener questions. Here's one from John who says, please help me make sense of the strategy in slashing resort perks. The loss of Magical Express added to the frustrating bus system makes it that much more likely I'll rent a car the next time I visit Disney World. The half hour early entry, which we just talked about, is insulting, especially if only half the park is open. And even the EMH for deluxe resort guests doesn't sound like it'll be worth the upcharge. I can't justify spending twice as much for a hotel that's half as comfortable when anybody playing Genie Plus can have the same park experience. Bob Chapek's absolutely going to get my $15 per day buying Genie Plus, but lose the $600 I would have spent on staying at a Disney hotel. Management can't be that mad at math, so what gives? All right, so let me just, let me say we got probably three dozen emails mm-hmm. similar to this. We picked out John's because it was short. Yeah, the big question is how much will offsite guests be treated differently by Genie and Genie Plus? Because to to John's point, the half hour early entry that mm-hmm. resort guests get, I think, is, is huge. Right? If you if you look at how much less you're going to wait in line, that's mm-hmm. at least an hour per park with that benefit. But if you can buy your way out of that for, let's say, $100 per family per day, why would you stay in an on-site hotel, you know, especially like a, a deluxe? Because mm-hmm. those are way more expensive than comparable off-site things. So why would you stay there? I think what Disney's hoping here is initially people aren't going to do the math. There's enough people who do the three to five years or once-in-a-lifetime trip to Disney World mm-hmm that the math isn't necessarily going to be front of mind. Right. I think, again, the thing we talked about last time around is just the drumbeat of, I got to open my wallet again. Yeah. And you want people to go home and go, oh my God, Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Reunion was the greatest ride I've ever been on. Not, oh, geez, how much money did I spend? You right. know, and, you know, we had a good time, but it was very expensive. That's that's not a great narrative. Yeah, you want the uh, you want the thing that people talk about to be, you know, the experiences, the the rides, mm-hmm. the food, the, yes. you know, the hotel, not how much it costs or how hot it mm-hmm. was or how long you spent in line or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's an interesting point. Mm-hmm. Jim, here's a, a letter from Alex. Who says, Disney announced that they're shutting down 47 Disney retail stores. This batch of retail stores seems located primarily in wealthier areas like Seattle and Miami. At the same time, they announced 100 pop-ups inside Target stores. We've talked in the past about how the parks target the top 20% of the U.S. population by income. This retail strategy seems to be the exact opposite approach. What's the idea here? If you take the 30,000-foot view on Disney and gaming there is this sort of, we're in it, we're out of it, we're in it, yeah, we're out of yeah, it, yeah. rhythm to what they're doing. And if you remember what happened with the Disney store chain, I mean, they started 86, 87 with the one store in, in Glendale, just down the street from Imagineering. And, you know, it got it up to as many as 700 in the United States before. Yep. Then they shrank it, then they sold it off the child place, then they came back into the field in the early 2000s. I think at this point, we're watching Disney kind of replay of the child place thing. The notion yeah. is we can have all of these Disney stores inside of Target. 
and we don't have to pay the rent. We don't exactly. Have to yeah, there's no you rent. Know, and, yeah. and also, let's be honest, malls, especially after what happened with the pandemic, are struggling. Yeah, malls are not the future. Yeah. Yeah, let's look for a safe harbor for the next couple of years, and that appears to be inside of Target stores. Yeah. Then let's see what retail settles out to, and and then let's go back into that space. So I honestly, if it were me, I'd be looking ahead till 2026, <laughs> you know, for the, the announcement of Disney stores. I guess that would be 3.0. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right, though. I think it's, uh, number one, you know, malls are not perceived to be an especially hot destination right now. So there's no point in paying standalone rent for something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but two, lots of people still go to Target, and you know, there are tons of Targets with you know, existing footprints where you don't need to pay separate rent. I think that's yeah. it's all about minimizing risk there. I don't know, absolutely. And we live in an Amazon world, and yeah. and as I understand it, Shop Disney, the online thing is doing just fine. So great, there you go. All right, next question from Mary, who has some trip planning questions. Mary writes, I'm an annual pass holder. I have a couple of questions about an upcoming trip in November. My traveling party and I were planning on staying offsite for our trip. John, are you listening to this? John. (laughs) (laughs) My current park pass reservations are as an annual pass holder, but we just switched our lodging to Shades of Green. So my question is, how does Disney determine if a guest is staying onsite at early entry? Will it be through a resort reservation? Is there a glitch if I'm an AP holder who has an AP reservation as an AP holder? Rather than a resort guest. Ah, so this is interesting because Jim, you know that there, uh, in terms of park reservations, Disney has three buckets, right? People who have bought a ticket for that specific day, annual pass holders, and then resort guests, right? So the question that Mary has in this first one is: If I'm an annual pass holder with a resort reservation, what bucket does my Ooh. reservation come from? And I think. The answer is that uh, it depends on how you made the reservation. If you made the reservation when you had the annual pass, but not the Shades of a Green reservation, it comes out of your annual pass, the annual pass bucket. If you had the Shades of Green reservation, it probably comes from resort. That's assuming a whole bunch of logic on the back end that may or may not exist. But that's my that's my understanding. You know your animal farm, right? You know <laughs> parts right? as parts. <laughs> well, no, no, no. To the effect of all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Yeah, I yeah, just, yeah. you know, the the notion of here, yeah, I I wonder about that. Is the resort guest weighted more heavily than an annual pass? Well, I know, I know that when parks are uh, approaching capacity, mm-hmm. the prioritization includes things like resort guests and have you been in a park already once today? Um, So things like that. So that's, they definitely know who's where related to a ticket. So, so that helps. So that's my, that, that was my sense there. Mm -hmm. Um, Second question from Mary. I've heard somewhere that only onsite guests will be allowed to use Disney transportation to the resorts from the parks. Do you know if this is true? I have not heard anything about this, Jim. You no, and I don't even want to think about it, the implementation of it, like how, how how hard it would be to do it, right? Which cast member is going to be armed with the Mickey-shaped cattle prod? It's like, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry. You'll, they're you'll they're having enough trouble it. hiring bus drivers. I, I would say that adding enforcement of that uh, particular yeah. requirement is, it would be almost impossible. The other thing, too, is like, what if what if you say something like, well, I was with my, you know, I was meeting my family who's staying mm-hmm. at Pop Century, but I live locally. And mm-hmm. we, you know, we all came from Pop Century, and that's where my car is. Then what? I mean, it's just there's just so many ways around it. 
I don't know. I agree. Uh, that I, it's, it's basically unenforceable. But here's the third question from Mary, which I really liked. And this is the would you rather mm-hmm. part of the conversation. So the question from Mary was, would it be cheaper to stay at a value resort and purchase two more days of tickets than to stay at a deluxe resort and get the extra evening magic hours? Mm-hmm. So this is interesting. And so here's what I did. Um, okay. I looked at dates in November because that's when Mary said she was going. I assumed two adults, one child. Child is eight years old. And mm-hmm. the least expensive deluxe resort for the dates that I picked uh, second week of November um, was the Animal Kingdom Lodge. So uh, so here are the prices, right? So two days and two nights at the Animal Kingdom Lodge, $1,829 with base tickets, no food. So mm-hmm. um, hotel and tickets. Three days, three nights, $2,705. Four days, four nights, $3,569. So the question is, is for let's go back to the two day, two night price of $1,829. How many days could you get if you stated a value? And it turns out the cheapest value is the All-Stars. You have your choice between movies and sports. Um, But you could get three days and four nights. So one extra day in the parks, two extra nights Mm -hmm. at the hotel for Mm -hmm. almost exactly the same price, $1,828, $1 less than Mm -hmm. Animal Kingdom Lodge. So right off the top, you get two more hotel nights and one day in the parks. But the interesting thing is, the three-day, three-night price at Animal Kingdom Lodge was $2,700. Mm-hmm. For $2,700, you can get six days and six nights at the Elsewhere Resort. So twice the Ooh. vacation. So it's $2,705 at Animal Kingdom Lodge, $2,769. So $64 more total mm-hmm. for the All-Stars, but twice as much trip. And then for, um, I actually couldn't couldn't come up with a, with a comparable thing for the four days, four nights at Animal mm-hmm. Kingdom Lodge for $3,500. I went all the way out to a week at a value. Mm-hmm. So seven days, seven nights was only $3,100. So there's oh. more than $400 difference. And you get okay. three more days and three more nights. Yeah, so if you put it that way, uh, Mary, you get much more vacation, mm-hmm. much more time in the parks at a value than you do at a deluxe. And going back to John's original point, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. two extra hours in the evening if you're staying at a deluxe, Mm-hmm. versus saving that money and staying twice as long at the all-star resorts for the same amount of money, you would do that. Yeah. But somewhere there's an executive in, in parks and experiences and products. Who, la, 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 not listening. I know, la, la, like, like, yeah. so, so that was, well, it's an interesting question, right? Cause you, cause mm-hmm. people are, are starting to do the, the this math, right? Mm-hmm. Like I said, we, Jim, we got like 30 letters along yep. along these lines about Genie. And the question is, for most of them, why wouldn't I just stay off site and pay whatever I need to pay to skip the lines? And that's going to be cheaper overall. Yeah. And as more and more people stay at Dockside and see what they get at that hotel yeah. versus what they get on Disney property and look at the price point, that's, again, another thing when people go home and talk about their vacations, like, oh, my God, yeah. you know, this new hotel at Universal. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have some issues with Dockside. I don't think the pillows are very comfortable at all. But, Jim, for $1,000... That buys a lot of duck down. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, well, no, more to the point. You know, you can walk out on International Drive and you can hire somebody to carry the pillow for you for a thousand dollars. It's a lot of Amazon for a thousand dollars, right? There you go. Yeah. So. All right. Here's a uh, here's a question from Jenny, and uh, let me preface this by saying I have a an Epcot mug, a coffee mug that I drink out of every day. I hand wash it. It's the 1982 
official Epcot mug. It's the one with the rainbow logo. Jim, you've seen mm-hmm. it? Yep. Uh, yep, yep. I got it for $5 on eBay. It is one of my most prized possessions. I love that coffee cup. And actually, like I talked to Laurel about buying backups in case this one is broke. So keep that in mind as I read this letter from Jenny. Mm-hmm. Hey, Lynn and Jim, I love listening to the Disney dish at home, especially while enjoying a beverage. The Walt Disney World 25th anniversary in the Millennium glasses from McDonald's are the glassware of choice at my house. So Jenny, I am with you on that. Same thing here. Same thing here. Gotta, oh my God. I think the 25th anniversary glasses were kind of fantastic. Because remember, those were the f- there were the four parks. Each park had its own glass. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. the great thing about those glasses, they were so they were clear with mm-hmm. the with the stickers on them. But those stickers, the the adhesive, whatever they used to paint those glasses, mm-hmm. they stayed on there forever. Like that was that, that was some automobile level of uh, of paint paint jobbing there. That was fantastic. No, absolutely. But we're talking about the rounded bottom versus the square bottom, right? <laughs> exactly. Like I said, the glassware of choice at the house, I, I know of what you speak. Okay, so. so Jenny says, I know the pandemic kind of squelched the runaway railway happy meal excitement. There mm-hmm. was uh, paper inserts that were called and so on. But I was wondering mm-hmm. how the runaway railway promotion was ultimately received by both McDonald's and Disney. And if there might be something new in the works, possibly for the 50th anniversary. So yeah, runaway railway kind of got, the debut of runaway railway got, upended completely by the pandemic. It did. It did. And McDonald's, which had set up this this promotion to, to help launch it, it also got tripped up as well. In regard to there possibly being special glassware for the 50th anniversary, and remember, we, we recently passed Disneyland 60th and that sort of thing. You'd think that that would be the same moment. But the sad thing is we live in a different age legally, and the notion of you're a fast food restaurant that is handing, you know, a patron who's paid an extra fee or thereabouts a piece of glassware that you then put in an, a paper bag that they can then drop on the floor and cut themselves and then sue you, we're well past that now. You know, that that's the saddest part. So cherish your Disney World 25th, likewise your Millennium glassware, because I don't think we're going to see that sort of promotion going forward. Never mind the fact Disney, after that amazing 10-year deal with McDonald's, actively began to distance itself from the company because of the concerns about, okay, well, is big food going to be the next lawsuit after Big Big Tobacco? tobacco. Yeah, Yeah, that's it exactly. So it's like, you stay over there and we'll throw you an occasional Happy Meal, but don't get us in trouble. (laughs) All right, so no no glassware with Happy Meals. No, no, but but on the other hand, if you head to to World of Disney, right there at Disney Springs, I think they can help you out. The funny thing is, is I was reading Jenny's letter uh, Mm. earlier in the week. And by the way, let me just say, I am completely booked all week. The unofficial guide updates that I'm working on are way past Mm. due. I'm getting calls Mm. every day from the editor saying, please, dear God, send me something. (laughs) So of course, Jim, I took half an hour out of my day and somebody had sent me a scan Mm. of a paper bag that you got when you bought something at the Contemporary Hotel in 1971 and the the color on this was amazing it's purples and oranges it has the retro contemporary resort logo on it so i'm like you know what i want this on a coffee mug the way that i have epcot so i spent a good 30 minutes jim Mm -hmm. in a a photo editor trying to extract and align this contemporary logo so that it would wrap around an entire mug and then i had it printed and it's uh, being shipped to me now 
Oh, okay. You make me feel so much better about the hours and hours I've spent researching Circus World you know, <laughs> over the, the past three weeks. I, I, in fact, I bought every program that Ridley Brothers and Barnum and Bailey put out from 1968 through 1984, because it turns out in those issues, they actually talk about the theme park that they were building out toward Haines City. And this is the project that terrified Disney. You know, yes. This is the reason they built Space Mountain and Pirates in Florida, because they were terrified that Mattel, which owned Ringling Brothers at that time, it's like, oh my God, Mattel's got such deep pockets in there, partnering with Ringling Brothers. I'm just happy to hear that you wasted your time in much the same way that I wasted my time. And, and Nancy will tell you that. It's like, can, can we spend real money on things we need, like groceries? I think it's one of those things where you are almost obligated to die before Nancy because <laughs> Nancy can at least explain your weird obsessions to the people who come get, get your body. Whereas yeah. if you die last, the people who find you are going to be like such a strange man with some very specific <laughs> tastes. Like you don't get to write your narrative at that point. You know, there's like, there's no explanation. No, 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 absolutely. Yeah. I, I fear the Charles Foster Kane exit. It's like, look, it's a Disney snow globe. What the hell does that mean? Exactly. <laughs> We're going to end up in, in a, in a, in a TV show like bones or something like that. Where's mysterious death. It's such a strange, strange man. Anyway. Very true. All right. Here's a, uh, an email from Christine who says, I just want to thank you guys for your ongoing commentary and discussion around the Disney parks and company. I really enjoyed the news discussion this week, and I thought I'd take a minute to thank you personally for what you do. Have a good week. Thank you, Christine. Mm, very sweet. Appreciate that. And then mm. finally, one from Katie, who says, Inquiring minds want to know, does any of this recent bad press have something to do with Xenia Mucha stepping down? I've heard she was known as the director of revenge back in her political days. Plus, you know, that whole Al Lutz thing, allegedly. Or are the executives just really out of touch here, and there's no other way to make it sound better? So, Jim, uh, you want to provide some context around this? I actually have some history with Xenia. <laughs> no, seriously. Not, that, that when not the, Jim, the least surprising sentence that you were going to ever say. <laughs> okay. Is, you know, I've got some history with Xenia. <laughs> you know, well, you have to remember so 2003. She? She? Well, she was uh, a major force in New York politics that Michael Eisner, in the middle of the Save Disney program, and Michael just could not get his arms around how to battle this. So he reached out and hired Xenia to come be part of the Disney company, come be part of the effort to derail what Roy Disney and Stanley Gold were trying to do. And this is where I actually entered the equation because there's a reporter at the Wall Street Journal who reaches out to me. And I actually talk about the time that Roy Disney called me at the house. And it was one of these things where I was writing about the Save Disney movement. And Roy was, you know, I want to thank you for writing about it. And is there any suggestions of what we could do? And, you know, and I explained to the reporter for the Wall Street Journal, you know, I, I've been sleeping on the couch and woke up in my sweatpants and I'm talking with Roy Disney. It's like, how much more <laughs> surreal can my life get? <laughs> and and they drop this into the Wall Street Journal. In fact, I'm down in Philadelphia for Disney's annual meeting. And the day before, they'd had a big Save Disney meeting across the street. Right. I remember this. Yeah. yeah so yeah. The, the morning of the annual meeting, I'm going to open the door to my hotel room and there's the Wall Street Journal. And they're staring up at me in the wood, wood green print is my own face. Oh, God. 
because I'm now being quoted in the Wall Street Journal about, and it's a story about how all these fans have supposedly come down to Philadelphia and are here to confront Michael Eisner. And I'm there as a, a reporter. I'm there working. So I show this to Nancy. She agrees that her life has gotten very surreal. And then <laughs> I walk to the convention center and I go to pick up my press credential. And the person who works the list, looks at me, disappears in the room behind me. And then comes out and says, I'm really sorry. We have decided to withdraw your press credential for this event. Oh. And they basically said, like, we have a new head of PR. She's just come on board. And she believes that you are now working for the enemy. <laughs> you know, that's like, you know, you've been quoted in the Wall Street Journal. You're working with enemy. So I now become part of the story because I've now been barred from the meeting. So that night... I'm on CNN, and I now get to comment on the meeting I didn't get to go to. But yeah, that was my initial dealing with Zinya. And, and, and what year was that? This was 2003. Okay. But, but that went on for a while, because remember, mm -hmm. as late as 2017, mm -hmm. the LA Times, which was critical of Disney's oh, actions in, yes, in yes. Anaheim, got blacklisted from mm. Dis they, uh, from Disney movie releases. So they yes, retaliated they against the Times mm -hmm. by saying, you know, we're, not, we're just not going to give you previews of our films anymore. Xenia was brought on board in 2003. Yeah. And Michael Eisner steps down. I think he stays on its CEO, but he, as part of the, the quarterly, that meeting, the annual meeting, he agrees to to give up the presidency and he agrees and you know 18 months or thereabouts to step down from the company so in a weird sort of way Roy and Stanley got what they wanted but at the same time they didn't get to put anybody on the board and that sort of thing so so Bob Iger becomes head of the Walt Disney Company in September of 2005 he keeps Xenia on in fact they are effectively walking out the door together that's right she's leaving when he's leaving right yeah. In fact, it's always been kind of insinuated, given her ties to New York politics. Mm. And there was some talk about Bob Iger, you know, perhaps pursuing political office after he left Disney and the notion that, eh, why don't you and I continue and have a conversation? But yeah, a lot of what Disney has done over the years and how they've dealt with the press and other folks is, is definitely Xenia's doing. And there's a number of people who've suggested that given the stumbles that Bob Chapek has made over the past month or so, it's like, you know, you really need to get your own Xenia. Yeah, that's, uh, I guess, to, to whip uh, media outlets in line. The problem now is that the media landscape mm. is just is just different. Like, there's no... Oh, no, no, no. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like you, it's a, a different world. Yeah. I think, um, uh, I think blacklisting the Los Angeles Times was probably a step too far there. I mean, it was, and we all know, and we all know Disney does stuff like they, mm -hmm. they have their preferred news outlets. I mean, I think that the New York times is where they go to break stories mm -hmm. about Imagineering. Like, so. Oh, no, no, no. In fact, it's so interesting you say that. Cause think about, we were just talking last week about Disney was in a bad press cycle. And last Friday we got that story that the New York times published about the new, uh, walk around animatronics that they're proposing for the parks. And <laughs> right. it's like, Wow. Okay. So that's your chess move. <laughs> All right. Well, cool. Yeah. All I right, saw. Let's, let's, I, I saw that as the uh, that that article came out about a day or two after the the stuff on Genie, right? Like that was made to to sort of take attention from it, but it didn't. It didn't really work. Did you notice that when Disney filed its motion for arbitration with Scarlett Johansson, they did it after midnight on Saturday night? Normally, the time when you uh, you fire special prosecutors so that nobody yeah. so that nobody notices. Yeah, yeah I'm just saying. Yeah, you know that, that's it. Exactly. Saturday night massacre. Yeah, they need to find a new Xenia. I'm just saying. Yeah, so. All right, fair enough. 
All right, folks, we're going to take a, a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim continues the history of Disney's Haunted Mansion. So we'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, Jim, when we left off last time, Walt was considering where to put his haunted house. Yeah, and remember, when we were talking previously, this is the walkthrough version that Candid Anderson has helped design. At this point, they're considering putting it next to the Jungle Cruise with basically at the site where the entrance to the Temple of Mara for the Indiana Jones adventure is located today. Okay. This is Walt, who, after you know, really being excited about the ghastly tale of, of Captain Gore and his bride Priscilla, is now expanding his vision for the haunted mansion. You know, I, I, on the last show, for example, we talked about you know the headless horseman coming in as a new character, but Walt right. wanted more characters, wanted more, and Walt is in a way handcuffed by design decisions he made back in '54 when they were designing Disneyland Park. And that sign you walk under as you enter Disneyland Park, and here we leave today Mm -hmm. and enter the world of yesterday, tomorrow, and fantasy. Mm -hmm. And a large part of why that's possible, Lynn, is the berm. Eight to 15 foot tall mound of earth that Walt had built around his family farm park. You kind of understand in 54, the idea was, so you're not going to be able to see out to the walnut groves or the orange trees that are just beyond the borders here. But as we get into 57 and 58, mm-hmm. we're now talking about the fast food places, the, the motels that have been built up just beyond Disneyland's borders. And there's only so much Walt can do about this. Because, you know, he bought 160 acres, but there's only 47 acres or thereabouts of land inside of Disneyland proper. Oh, really? 47. So uh, less than a third. Yeah. And some of that is you do need back of house. uh, You do need parking and you need other areas, which we'll get to in a moment. But for a time, the berm keeps the outside world out. But as early as 1956, here's Disney installing the Astrojets, which are able to raise up to 35 feet in the air and then fly around in a 50-foot circle. And while oh, you're up there... Yeah, you can see outside the berm. You can see outside the berm. And then uh, June 23rd of that same year, uh, the Skyway opens. And as you get in your sky bucket, same thing. You can see out to the outside world. But Walt, you know, it's like, look, it's a ride, and they come back down to Earth inside of my park. Where is Holidayland? Len, do you know Holidayland at all? Or? Was this was this the thing you're supposed to be building the parking lot? Parking lot adjacent. Uh, think outside the berm right. to the west of Frontierland in the chunk of land that today, you know, that parking lot that's kind of in front of the entrance to downtown Disney, the five-hour limited parking lot. It's basically outside the berm there. And what this was was a nine-acre parcel of land. It was where corporations would rent out the space for, you know, for example, say, Lockheed Employee Appreciation Day. Okay. 
And the thing is, it was space for upwards of 7,000 people. And this was, it was west of Frontierland. West of Frontierland. You you actually could get in and out of the land because they, they built ineffectively a gravel walkway where you could step over the railroad tracks and walk into the space that had baseball diamonds, softball fields, horseshoe pitches, and volleyball courts. Additionally, picnic area, swing sets for the kids, and concessions where you could buy hamburgs and hot dogs and or excuse me, you were there for employee appreciation day, where you could the way they'd happily hand you hamburger, oh, hot dog, or a coke. Okay. Or, or so this is, sort of is this where critter country Ended up? No, no, no. You see, now you're thinking north. Think uh, to the west. In fact, to spoil the story, this spot is where the actual show building for the Haunted Mansion is. Oh, got it, got it. Okay, okay. All right. So this opens in June of 57. This is when Walt is still considering doing the the walkthrough tests Mm -hmm. of the, the mansion back at the studio lot. And Holiday Land. Definitely serves a purpose. You know, it creates a new revenue stream for the parks. And Walt is happily takes the money that corporate groups give him to get this chunk of the park to buy admissions to Disneyland. And, and in fact, that's the money he plows into making the Matterhorn, the monorail, okay. uh, you know, the subs. Uh, you know, so it, it served its purpose. But at the same time, Walt is really not happy about Holidayland. He, he especially doesn't like the fact that a lot of these large corporations, you know, when they're doing their employee appreciation days at Disneyland, insist on being able to serve beer to their employees along with those hot dogs and hamburgers. Huh. People will come to events like this, they'll get overserved, and they then walk through that gateway uh, yep. in Frontierland into his park. Oh, it's the they're exiting back into the park. Yeah, that okay. They uh, are. Okay, I see the Okay, issue. now, interesting that you mentioned exiting into the park because you now have day guests who are in the park. And <laughs> especially during the fall and the winter, you got to understand Holiday Land was crucial to Disneyland's financial survival during the off-season in those years because that was during the time when the park would only be, would be closed on Mondays and Tuesdays and only right. open, you know, Wednesday to Sunday. And so what they do during those times of year where it got cool is they take the the tent that they had erected for the Mickey Mouse Club Circus. You remember that thing that ran for like three months in 55 to 56? Yes, we talked about it, yeah. Okay, so they erect this giant white and red tent, which looms up over the tree line of Frontierland, just beyond the train station. Speaking of which, you've got people who are riding the train okay. who look out and they can hear music. They can see the giant circus tent. And so they walk over to Frontierland and I want to go to the circus. And they're like, and the security guard who's standing at the gate's like, well, do you have the badge? <laughs> what they do is they'd issue a little paper tag that would hang for, off a piece of string that men would tie to their belt and women would tie to their purse. And it's like, well, no, I have my ticket from Disneyland. It's like, well, I'm sorry, this is a private party and you can't get in. Ah, uh, that's not great. So you get your money for your Matterhorn, your subs, your monorail. But at the same time, you also get people who are staggering around your family fun park. And that's not a great message to send. So this is why we get to 1960. And Walt, for the first time, starts talking about, you know, I think we should think about building outside the berm. The argument is, look, if we have more rides, we have more shows and attractions to offer guests, we've expended our daily capacity means we don't have to rely on revenue streams like these corporate groups. This is when we see Disneyland's New Orleans Square start to shift. Initially, again, it kind of hugged 
the Jungle Cruise. And as mm-hmm. we mentioned, this is why the, the original version of the Haunted House walkthrough was located down there. Likewise, this is also when Pirates of the Caribbean was going to be a walkthrough. That was when it was called Rogue's Gallery. And you, you descended into a cellar and then walked from scene to scene. But now the three-acre version of, of New Orleans Square shifts to the west. And... Ooh. That coincidentally, Walt moves the Haunted Mansion from the edge of the Jungle Cruise to now it's facing to the east toward the Rivers of America. And it, it abuts this Holiday Land area, which late winter, early spring of 61, Walt turns to his folks who, who handled this corporate events group and, hey, I'm sorry, we're going to need more River Mansion. So you need to tell all the corporate groups that we've made arrangements with that uh, Holiday Land will be closing this year. In fact, we'll honor all of the contracts right up until Labor Day. But after that, that area is becoming park. That's where the Haunted Mansion is going to extend out into. September of 61, Holiday Land closes and they start work on uh, Haunted Mansion. And, and seriously, Walt was not getting around to create the work site for the actual mansion that we know today. There was a little controversy because the Imaginers had drawn this sort of collapsed, decrepit version of the mansion. And Walt was very insistent, like, no, it's got to look nice. It's inside of my park. That's how where the mythology of we take care of the outside, the ghosts take care of the inside, that it can be creepy inside, but you know, that outside it's got to look It's like great. a condo association, like the HOA takes care of the walls. <laughs> there we go, yes. This would be an HHOA, you know, that the haunted, <laughs> haunted houses. Haunted are, they, there we go. <sighs> the jokes just keep coming, Jim. There you go. So it's 61 and Holiday Land closes. And that fall, as you enter Disneyland and you're handed your map to go into the park, tucked inside is a leaflet to the effect of, hey, be sure to come back to the park in 1963. That's when our brand new haunted house attraction will be They're hyping this up in 61. 61. But that obviously doesn't happen for two reasons. WED really took on more than it could handle for the 64, 65 World's Fair. In fact, I don't know if you've seen the latest set of the behind the attraction shows that they've been doing on Disney Plus. But just yesterday, uh, Wednesday, the 25th, they debuted their Small World episode, which actually. Oh, I haven't seen that one yet. No. Yeah. They did a really good job of basically explaining. They'd already committed to great moments with Mr. Lincoln for Illinois. Uh, likewise, Progress right. Land for GE and, of course, Skyway for uh, – or Magic Skyway for Ford Pavilion. And then August of 63, you know, nine months out from the start of the fair, Walt says yes to PepsiCo. And, you know, they do the UNICEF ride, which, you know, again, becomes small world. And I remember talking with Bruce Gordon about this where he talked about how – November of 1962, the Swiss Family Treehouse opens at Disneyland, and he used to talk about how he'd climb up to the topmost part of the Swiss Family Treehouse and peer down into the construction site of New Orleans Square, where all work had stopped because, of course, Walt is throwing everybody he has at trying to get the stuff done for the 64 World's Fair. and okay. so, so Bruce Gordon's doing this like sometime between 62 and 64. Actually, you know, the, the thing is that Bruce could pin it down to the exact moment. In fact, he, he remembers because the mansion was completed by December. Uh, and we're talking just the, the exterior of the mansion that we know today. 
uh, by December of 62. He remembers standing outside of the, the rod iron fence, looking in at this structure that, and he's going to, and, and Bruce, even then, before he became an Imagineer, was this crazed collector. So he had his leaflet that from 61. Sure. Like, oh my God. Oh my God. It's, it's December of 1962. And they say the mansion is going to open in 63. And that's just a month away. And oh my God, I'm finally going to get to experience this ride. And that does not happen till <laughs> August of 1969. Yeah. So he's got seven, six, seven more years. Yeah. And, but again, a, a lot of that largely is on the back of just everyone was so busy working on the stuff for 64 World's File. It was the work that was done for the fair. For example, uh, we only got the technology that, that powered the Omnimover, which again became the ride system was used in the mansion because of the 64, 65 World's Fair. That was the earliest version of that moved the all of those Ford cars through Magic Skyway. Conversely, Pirates of the Caribbean was supposed to be that walkthrough, Rogue's Gallery, but we right. only got the boat version of that because Small World got rammed through in nine months. But there's another really crucial reason as to why we did not get the mansion opening in 63. And that's as they make a really nice job of this drumbeat in the Small World version of behind the attraction. And it's like Walt liked to use other people's money. <laughs> this is what he learned during the 64 World's Fair. That's it, exactly. That, that he wanted to use other people's money to divide, you know, to further the advance of animatronics, to further advance of the, the, the ride systems and that sort of they used. And about this same time, Walt had the opportunity to do an indoor theme park. He'd been reached out to by the folks in St. Louis who were looking to build a five-story tall, two-block-long indoor entertainment complex. And Walt was looking at this moment and thinking, what else can I get for my mansion and my pirate thing? And we'll talk further about that, the, this specific project, the Walt Disney's Riverboat Square Project of St. Louis on the next installment of this series. Fantastic. And um, you, have, um, you have blueprints. I do. Right I now. do. And there's a couple of different sets. There's at least one set, for example, that features the Babes in Toyland ride. Really? We haven't talked about that. No, that's that's it exactly. There were, there were a number of things. Lewis and Clark attraction. There was a, at one point they talked about, they were going to take the technology that powers the Enchanted Tiki Room. So you have a room full of animated birds mm -hmm. and they were going to marry it to Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. And basically what it was going to be was an animatronic James Audubon stands up and oh. gives a lecture about uh, North American flora and fauna. And, you know, it's like, hey, look, there's a robin. And they say the kids don't have entertainment options these days. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, there you go. It's like another place for dad to go with his 20 ounce. Get <laughs> 20 ounce Starbucks. You know, I'm just going to sit oh, here and listen to this, this dude right here talk about some birds. There it's we fine. go. So. <laughs> oh, <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, entertainment has changed a lot in the last 60 years. It has, it has. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including a new show on the history of Disney's Flying Saucer Rides. On next week's show, we're going to continue this history of the Haunted Mansion. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. 
were produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be playing acoustic guitar on Skid Row's I Remember You, It's in the Key of G, during an evening with Sebastian Bach on Wednesday, October 13th at 7 p.m., the Paramount Center for the Arts in beautiful downtown Bristol, Tennessee. While Aaron's doing that, please go on to iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.